Welcome to episode 160 of the Sentientism podcast, a podcast about what's real and who matters. The Sentientism worldview answers those two deep questions by committing to using evidence and reason and having compassion for all sentient beings. In this episode, I speak with Yamini Narayanan. Yamini is Senior Lecturer in International and Community Development at Deakin University in Australia. Her work makes substantive contributions to the rapidly emerging field of South Asian animal studies through a twin focus on animals in political and urban life in India. It addresses species as an explicit identity category in Indian national politics through the intersections of anthropocentrism, sectarianism and casteism. Her amazing book, Mother Cow, Mother India, offers one of the first empirical critiques of India's cow protectionism discourse and politics from a critical animal studies standpoint. We dig into it in the episode. I'd love to know what you think of this episode and the 159 others, of course. Why not let me know via a review or rating? Another way to support us, although it's a bit of a long shot to be honest, is to vote for Sentientism in the British Podcast Awards at britishpodcastawards.com slash voting. You can find out more about Sentientism at our new website, sentientism.info, where you can sign up for email updates or just search for Sentientism on your favourite social media platform. You'll be made very welcome in all of our global online communities. They're open to anyone interested in these sorts of ideas, not just sentientists. Thanks for listening. The eyes are possibly one of the most real aspects of connection between two sentient beings. When I'm talking to a self-identified Hindu right-wing cow vigilante, when I look into their eyes though, there it allows a window of an, of an opportunity of connection. And, and I've been thinking about why a calf's cry is so, it demands attention. The way an infant's cry is, is meant to demand attention. No one asked me if this was okay as a consumer. No one asked me, I, this is not, you know, not in my name. This could not go on in my name. Hinduism does endorse that all living beings are divine. There is no exemption. Now this does become very difficult in the current political climate, which is actually mobilizing the sacrality of an animal to its ends. I've heard so many people say Indian dairy farming is exemplar because the idea of cows as sacred or cow as mother sounds nice, but the reality always shows something different. So the, this, this puzzle about how does India become the largest beef producer in the world, a country where some about 20, 25 states have a ban on cow slaughter. India's constitution, I think is one of the first in the world again to state that every Indian citizen has a fundamental duty to be compassionate. Whether these modes of thinking can find their way into ways that translate into the political economy, I would very much like to think that yes, it would. We don't have a Nelson Mandela. We don't have a Mahatma Gandhi. We don't have a Martin Luther King for animals. Are you available, by the way? <laughs> Good evening, Yamini. How are you? Thank you, Jamie. Good evening to you too. And thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're spanning the globe again. So it's a morning in a sunny London and evening where you are. But um, the technology seems to be working. So it's great to have the chance to talk to you. I've um, really enjoyed reading at least excerpts so far from your book, Mother Cow, Mother India. And it was absolutely fascinating. So it's brilliant to get the chance to talk to you about it and your wider work as well. Uh, yeah, so thanks for joining me on Sentientist Conversations. Oh, thank you, Jamie. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you about my book. I think this is the first conversation that I'm having on a podcast about this, about Mother Cow, Mother India, because it was released just about a month ago. So it's a baby book and you're the first conversation that I'm having about it. 
Oh, it's brilliant. It's an honour to be the first, hopefully first of many. Yeah. So yeah. as, as we had the chance to chat a few days ago briefly as well. So as you know, this is a series of conversations. You know, of course, your book fits beautifully into this, but it's a series of conversations ultimately about what I think of as the two deepest uh, philosophical questions. What's real and how should we understand the universe and what exists and what doesn't? Um, and how should we form those beliefs? Questions of epistemology, but also just as importantly, the questions of ethics. Um, who matters and what matters and, and so on and so forth. Um, and I have an obvious bias in how to answer those because I'm trying to popularise and develop this really pluralistic, simple worldview I'm calling sentientism, which in a sentence is, let's use evidence, reason, and have compassion for all sentient beings. So it suggests we answer the what's real question with a quite a naturalistic approach using evidence and reason. Um, and when it comes to the ethical question, it's quite ethically pluralistic. It doesn't tell us what system to use, but it says whatever ethical approach you use, every sentient being has to matter. Every being that can experience things, particularly can suffer, can flourish. Um, but I'm talking in these conversations to people whether or not they disagree with that worldview. So it'll be fascinating to understand your own sort of personal philosophical journey and how that plays into your work and and your book. Uh, but before we get onto those big, crazy questions, how would you best introduce yourself? Uh, thanks, Jamie. Uh, my name is Yamini Narayan, and I'm an Associate Professor of International Development at Deakin University in Melbourne. Um, my research for a long time focused on uh, gender-sensitive urban development, and it was entirely by mistake, entirely by a very fortuitous mistake, um, because my research was supposed to be focusing on a very, very specific aspect of uh, uh, women-sensitive um, urban transportation in the city of New Delhi, which has a very high rape rate against women. So it was a very specific project that I was actually working on when a twist of events uh, suddenly led me to the world of animals. And in the, for the last 10 years, I think I really did a roundabout turn and I started to focus on animals and urban planning as a start. And then of course it kind of transposed and uh, in, in, transpired into animals and national politics in India. So that has been my work in the last uh, few years, especially focusing very specifically on animals and various forms of identity politics and nationalistic politics in India. Yeah, absolutely fascinating. Thank you. And we'll dig into some of those themes as we work through. So let's start with the first of these big philosophical questions, what's real? So for many of my guests, that's a story about whether they grew up originally in maybe a more religious or a supernatural or a mystical sort of family and society and context and had those sorts of beliefs, or one that was more naturalistic, scientifically minded, maybe atheist agnostic, um, and how that side of their thinking has changed over time. And, you know, religion isn't the only question, of course, when you're thinking about naturalism and supernaturalism, but it's it's often the central one. But you can tell the story however you like about how you uh, how your thinking started and how it's developed on that front. How do I perceive um, what is real? Yeah, this has been such an interesting question because um, we're constantly questioned on what is you know our our conclusions, our observations, our empirical analysis about uh, about our work on animals, and when we present it, especially to a to an audience who is not familiar with animals. We're constantly questioned about how do you know that this is real? How do you read an expression of a cow? How do you read the mannerism of a cow? How do you ascribe these sorts of emotions? Or how do you ascribe even these sorts of politics to a particular cow or to cows as collectives or as species? So the question of what is real comes up um, constantly in various different forms um, in, in animal studies work in particular. It's a question that we have been challenged on, uh, but it's also a question that we need to reflect on, our, on ourselves because how much of 
how much of projections and how much of biases and prejudices are we bringing into, into our conclusions, into our analysis, into our narratives, uh, into our own politics, how much of it is self-serving. So we got to sort of reflect on these questions very closely ourselves as well. Yeah, it's sort of foundational, isn't it? You can, if you want to engage with the world in some way, you have to hold beliefs about it. So how you hold those beliefs and how you come to hold those beliefs and how and whether you challenge them is, is sort of inescapable, right? It's a really deep question, yeah. Extremely deep questions. And in order for us to bring a lot of authenticity and integrity to this work and to do justice to the subjects of the work that we care about, both human and non-human beings that we care about, we actually got to be very carefully reflecting on this question of what is real all the time. And um, I really found your question, and despite thinking about it, your question again made me rethink and reflect on this. And I think this is probably the question that I've been thinking about the most in the lead up to our conversation today. What is real? So when I am in the field and when I am directly confronted by scenes of really visceral, extreme physical violence and suffering, Okay, because that is what I get to see in the specific areas of animal work that I do, which is in the dairy farming. Currently, I'm working on animal labor in Indian bricklands. Uh, even in the human case, the International Labor Organization calls uh, the South Asian bricklands the most extreme working environment, which is almost a gentle way of putting what is actually out there. It's a brutal environment, right? It's one of the most extreme, brutal environments. They are talking about it in the case of humans who still have some very meager rights, but or, or some, the flimsiest of protections, flimsiest, virtually none in many cases, but in the case of animals, they are completely have been disregarded all this while as, as laboring subjects at all, right? So the, the scenes that I see are constantly visceral and brutal. And in these kind of contexts, again, you know, on the one hand, what is real is, is so obvious. So we think uh, the, 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 the fact of suffering, the fact of sentience, the, um, but I and and it's also a question. It's also a you know question that we you know critical animal scholars constantly have between ourselves as well. And one of the one of the ways that I thought I would enter into this understanding into this discussion of what is real is what do I choose to engage with when I view or when I witness an animal, right? And I've asked this question to a lot of other scholars as well, and they will you know a lot of activist artist scholars will say things like, "Oh, the the patterns of their fur or the colors of their fur." or the colors of an animal's skin, you know, the scales of, a, of, a, of or the feathers. And these are, you know, these are things that an artist activist is, is naturally drawn to. For me, I think it has always been the eyes, right? The eyes of an animal. And, and in, even in my um, previous work on humans, I, for some reason, I always connect directly with the eyes. It is impossible to, in my view, to sustain any form of differentiation fundamentally when we look at the eyes, when we look at other body parts, when we look at other features, physical features. And then it's not to disregard those um, features or, or, or even the differences that these features suggest, but I find it almost difficult, impossible to differentiate in any significant or any meaningful way beyond literally um, noting any physical difference. I, I find it difficult to differentiate in any meaningful way when I see the eyes. And I think for me, the eyes are possibly one of the most real aspects of connection between two sentient beings, right? And it is impossible for me to see difference. It's impossible for me to see hierarchy when I look into the eyes. I think it's just, it's really difficult. And it is not just in the case of um, human to another non-human being, but even between humans. So when I'm talking to a butcher, 
when I'm talking to a self-identified um, Hindu right-wing cow vigilante, when I look into their eyes though, right, it is again difficult for me to cancel or reject them completely as well. And I think therein, therein allows a window of, of an opportunity of connection. So for me, the eyes are a pathway into something real, into something which is deeper than in any superficial connection. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. And you and you're demonstrating something that always almost always happens in these conversations. It's really hard to separate the sort of what's real from the who matters thing. But that's a beautiful connection because you, you sort of started to explain the answer to that later question about you know how you use evidence and a real physical connection and a a view into the eyes and an identification as as a link into understanding the other and it's so in a sense in doing that you're using evidence right because as you say in your field work you're out there you're using your senses you're looking you're listening you're hearing you're you're, you're feeling you're smelling so you know that is a sort of broadly naturalistic approach right that i'd argue basically all humans take to some degree and non-humans take as well you know i sometimes argue that you know before humanity even existed non-human animals are in a sense taking a naturalistic approach they're using their senses they're trying to learn honestly about the world and using that to navigate so i think that's fairly well grounded but you mentioned the sort of critical animal studies perspective and obviously there's the broader sort of swathe of academic approach that take a critical approach and one of the things that i i understand is really central to that idea is is quite a heavy weight on the subjective if that yes. makes sense so it, it's understanding uh, you know, different perspectives and and valuing those perspectives and and recognizing and not being too quick to jump to this view that there is one single objective reality. There's a total ultimate truth and and according weight to subjective views of that, different views of that. Is that is that fair to say? That's a theme in critical studies. Abs oh, absolutely. And not just uh, acknowledging that there are variations in subjective views between us as scholars or between us as humans, but also amongst animals themselves, amongst collectives of animals themselves, they have subjective views of us, they have subjective reactions to us, they have differentiate differentiated reactions to us. Um, they any, any being with a perspective, yeah. Any being with a perspective, and they react in such deeply individualistic ways. And um, you know, when I'm in a when I'm in a um, in, in a fieldwork situation, I'm talking about a dairy farm here. Now, in an Indian dairy farm, um, animals are heavily, heavily restrained and constrained. Right? They are almost like concentrated animal feeding operations of the West. So they're chained, they're tied, and they remain that way for nearly 24 hours, almost continuously. So we're walking into a situation where they are absolutely unable to exhibit no natural behavior virtually. They can't even turn their, cows can't even turn their heads around to scratch themselves because they're tied um, with face harnesses so tightly with, on very, very short leashes. There's something I talk about repeatedly in my book. Even when they're tied, they're such tight leashes, such tight chains that they, they can't move. So you're, you're walking into a situation where there is very limited um, avenue for, for all these individuals to express individual behavior, or so you would think, and yet they manage, right? Cows will, there are cows who express curiosity in me. They want some uh, my attention sometimes. They are repulsed by my attention sometimes, right? They are... I mean, the way that I would read them, and I talk about this in my book as well, 
they are impatient with they're impatient they 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 are, they are they have reached a point where they're almost tired of futile gestures from humans like you know if i scratch them or if i try to pet them they don't even want that anymore they they, they don't they've, they probably have never wanted that but um there is such a spectrum of reactions right there's a, such a wide spectrum of reactions so i think it is and it is really important for me to hold all those collective responses, diverse responses, contradictory responses, responses that I don't understand, responses that I that sometimes shame me, you know. So I want to actually distance myself from them, uh, but I but I shouldn't, and I and I try not to, and I'm and I'm in fact more mindful of holding in in mind and holding and 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 holding and giving space to those responses of cows that actually bring shame in me. Right. Um, for what it suggests about myself, either as an individual or as a human being. So I think it's really important to sort of hold these sorts of um, collective, subjective, diverse responses, not just of us as human beings, but as a but for the whole, you know, bearing in mind that these realities and this variety of experiences exist for other beings as well that we work with sometimes very closely. And, and sometimes there's a caricature made of the critical animal studies or the critical studies world where and the caricature is roughly that you're taking the subjective so you'll be putting so much weight on the subjective that you're almost denying there is an objective shared reality and and there can you know the, and the the caricatures would be of people talking about um their own lived experience or their own truths as if they're independent from reality as a whole and and almost the implication that they might even be arbitrary right i can just choose to believe anything i like and there's nothing you can or should say to ever challenge that because it's my own truth and i think there's a degree to which that that's often just a caricature but i guess the way i try to reconcile it is that again we're coming to touch on the ethical topic in a bit as well but in a way the, the central idea of sentientism is that the sentience the experiences of the other are the absolute grounding of ethical concern and ultimately in my view all value right so in that sense my perspective which is a very sort of boring naturalistic scientifically minded quite hard-edged epistemology is totally focused in value terms on the experiences of the other so i take the subjective i mean is foundationally important in everything of value but at the same time, I do think that each of those subjective beings and even their subjective perspective, which I think of as patterns of information processing going on in their brains and their nervous systems, those subjective beings themselves are objective parts of a shared reality that do probably exist out there and that we all do share one reality. And what that means to me is that I think it's ultimately a hopeful message because we can take the subjective viewpoints of others very seriously because I do think we probably all share one objective reality and each of those subjects are part of the objective reality that gives us a chance to learn about things together and develop common ground and understand each other. And, you know, we're not just completely isolated islands floating in a galaxy, right? We, we do ultimately share one objective reality. So that's that's my sense of how I try and put, you know, lots of weight on the subjective, but still recognise that we there's only really one truth and we're all scrabbling to understand it and we all share one reality, but I don't know how you think about that. That's a, that's a great question because this, 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 um, this charge of emotionalism, especially is something that dairy researchers in particular face, I think. 
Yeah, it links to this. It links to the sort of intellectual versus emotional thing as well, doesn't it? Yeah. That's right, because one of the things that, you know, daily researchers constantly bring to light is the separation of the mother and the and the infant and and the lived realities and the suffering and the, the visceral suffering that, you know, both the mother and the infant experience as a result. And the the words that are used, the way that these are these these realities are described. Um, the, the very fact of suffering as a result of the separation of mother and child, which is held to be one of the most important relationships in intra-human relationships, right? So this separation, when we talk about it, is, you know, it's so uncomfortable that I think the charges of emotionalism um, come to front very quickly. Uh, one of the ways in which I tried to sort of circumnavigate this particular type of chart is because, you know, on the face of it, when you're seeing it in a farm, it is undeniable. I mean, the the, the, the the way the cows train, the way the calves. Oh, my God. I did not know until I started this research about how loud and how charged a calf's bleating for, a, for its mother can be. It's repeated. I've never, I think that's the one sound that I've never been able to get used to. Not even the cow's cries, but so much as the calf's cries. I think, you know, and, and I've been thinking about why a calf's cry is so viscerally loud and 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 charged and it is it, it is not possible i mean i think the very nature of its of its cries it's is is it demands attention the way an infant's cries is meant to demand attention right the i mean it's not just the mother or the rest of us are kind of pulled to the calf's cry as well um and i think it's because you know in a, in a natural herd in a free, free roaming forest herd if a calf kind of if a calf fell away from the herd it had to the, the calf had to find a way of somehow making himself or herself heard right and i think it was really loud and the mother could find her way back to her you know her calf so it's a really loud sound um something i've never been able to get used to but in when I started to look at, you know, more objective forms of research, well, fine, if, you know, critical animal researchers are are emotional or are or, or anthropomorphizing too much, if this, these are the kind of charges that are laid, how do dairy scientists talk about it? How do veterinary scientists talk about it? How do animal welfare scientists talk about it, right? So I started to look at all their journal research, and I started to draw on their work as well. So they start with, they would talk about um, the cow expresses discomfort, which is a very neutralized language as compared to you know how we might talk about it in 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 more in more vivid terms or in more descriptive terms but they would talk about how cow um expresses discomfort at the separate you know it, and it particularly peaks um if the separation has been you know if if the if the cow, cow and the calf have been allowed to stay together for let's say a week or two days or even two weeks sometimes and then separated then the cow's discomfort escalates or elevates um so and then you probe about what does cows what does it mean for a cow to be experiencing discomfort and then they will talk about how you know she's exhibiting restless behavior or she was she's um you know, sniffing at the gate repeatedly. She's charging around at the gate repeatedly because she knows the gate is the very thing that is keeping her away from the calf. So what I'm saying is that they kind of tend to, to describe these things in more observational terms, right? Whereas I think what critical animal studies um, has now started to describe uh, these acts of um, observation as witnessing because there's something more political about witnessing. Right. Observation is somewhat of a more depoliticized term now. It's not to say I think traditional anthropologists will still insist that observation is political. 
because we are looking at, especially, um, we, we are looking at lived realities of people and that always is inherently a political act. So I think traditional anthropologists will insist that observation continues to be political. And it can be a tool against oppression and against as a, as a tool of resistance by you know, grounding things in, in facts and using it as an evidence space as well. Absolutely, absolutely. So for all of these reasons, observation is political, but the, but the reality is that, you know, um, scientists and laboratories who, who use animals will also talk about observing animals. Their engagement, their methodology is also observation. Right. So there is always a risk. So so I think um, animal studies scholars, especially those of a critical political bent, talk instead about witnessing. And how is observation then different from witnessing? Right. Witnessing is more charged, more political. Witnessing is inherently inherently demands advocacy. It demands response the way observation doesn't necessarily demand a political response. But witnessing demands a political response whether it is in terms of advocacy, whether it's in terms of writing about it, whether it is, I mean, it's, and I mean, sometimes it is, you know, uh, to the very empirical, very pragmatic situation of, 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 um, of, of litigation, you know, that's something which I think inevitably kind of goes together um, in, 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 in field work context where you are able to do that as an, as an Indian citizen, I will often invoke uh, the right to Informa information act, for example, right. Um, so, I, so, 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 these are also avenues of of trying to react. It's not to say that these are not possible in an observational situation, but I think witnessing demands more advocacy and a more of a political response than than observation might. And and is do you think the reason why witnessing demands that political response is because it has a richer sense of identification with the perspective of the other, whereas an observational stance almost by definition is, you know, standing back and looking from the outside, whereas a witnessing is at least attempting to stand in the shoes of the other or in the hooves of the other. And and, and that's where the charge comes from. That's where the imperative comes from, because you, you're sort of trying to feel what they feel or am I? You put that perfectly, actually. So when in an observational situation, I, I'm still exercising control. Yeah. In a witnessing situation, I am surrendering some control. You know, I am allowing myself a greater degree of vulnerability. I'm not. This is not to say that as a human witness, you're surrendering control altogether. That is inherently impossible, I think. But in a observational situation, you have full control. You are. Um, you, you have control in a witnessing situation as well. But I think it's a question of the degrees of vulnerability of the researcher. I think it's important for a researcher to be vulnerable in order to be political, in order to allow oneself to be political. One has to, I have to allow myself to be vulnerable. And it's really interesting because sometimes, this, and, and this is where I think one has to be very careful also though about um, human narcissism and human ego coming in the way. Sometimes I will witness something, right? And it's an act of, and it may not be an act of extreme violence, like physical violence in that moment. It is, I remember in my last field trip, um, there was 11 donkeys in a, in a, in a informal slaughterhouse and they were, you know, going to be slaughtered the next day. 11 donkeys, 11 male donkeys, each of them were tied up, um, hobbled quite intensively, so they couldn't really move. And I, despite not being able to move again, you could see different reactions to my presence, which was a strange presence. 
But there was one donkey in particular in the far right corner who had who had nothing, who was so broken. He didn't, he, I don't know in the moment of actual slaughter what his reaction might have been. But in that moment, he had nothing. He was broken. He, you know, whether I was there, not there, whether I was taking photos, whether I was walking around, whether I was trying to, he had absolutely nothing. He was broken. He was completely broken, right? So my, what I'm saying with with the, with this, with, with witnessing, with, with the level of, and when I think about that, when I think about that donkey, that broken donkey, especially much later, sometimes I feel like my pain is almost so visceral and physical that I feel like I'm the pain body. And that's when I think, got to be so careful about yeah. my ego and my... Because you're not experiencing that. And I am not experiencing that, right? I am not experiencing that. So I think with even witnessing, one has to be very careful about not deluding oneself that though you have so much empathy for that pain. And, and that is why I think most, a lot of um, critical animal researchers who do active field work, they do legitimately experience a lot of post-traumatic stress. It is not to take that away. I've experienced that myself, but we're still not experiencing, I mean, the pain body. Even I think about the pain body, I almost think that I, I almost, I sometimes feel, and I know that that's, that's some egoistic narcissism that's thinking that, I can almost feel what the donkey is feeling, which is so not true, which is so beyond not true. So I think we've got to be very careful in, in witnessing as well about how far we take that sense of empathy. It is true that what differentiates observation from, from witnessing might be a greater degree of empathy. It's not to say that observation is devoid of empathy, but I think witnessing is founded upon empathy. Observation is not necessarily founded upon empathy at all. But how far we take, run with that empathy as well, we've got to be very careful. We've got to be, we've got, we've got to be very vigilant of our own sort of motivations and our own sense of narcissism there as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You need that humility. And it, it, and it seems to me that that's where the, the right answer lies, is, is in that balance between, um, you know, if you, if you only take, try to take an objective stance and you ignore the subjective, you've almost destroyed value or empathy or ethics in a sense if you go purely you know totally detached objectivity <clears throat> there's that risk that you lose the value and the meaning and the connection and the politics if Absolutely. You, if, you, if you take a purely subjective stance but lose your connection to objectivity that has plenty of its own risks as well and and to my mind i just don't see there's an issue in using both sides and i guess it comes back to again to this the suggestion that the subjective is where the value is but the subjective is part of our shared objective reality too. And I love the, the way you talked about that connection with the eyes, because sometimes, you know, obviously when I'm talking about sentience, people will talk about, well, how do you assess sentience? And, and I quite often give quite a sort of objective scientific answer about lines of, you know, inference. So I can talk about, we have a common evolutionary history with, for example, non-human animals, and you can understand the adaptive context and that gives us some evidence that they might experience things the same way we do. We could look at their behavior and communications and infer from that that, you know, it's likely that those things are being driven because they have a subjective perspective and they are sentient beings. You could look at the way they process information and the commonalities in nervous systems and say, look, they seem to be processing information in similar ways, you know, with senses and reactions and so on. So you could do all of that scientific stuff and say, look, therefore, I'm pretty confident that I'm pretty confident that you're sentient. I'm pretty confident that 
the puppy behind me here is sentient as on. And so you can do all that sort of scientific, naturalistic, objective stuff. But firstly, even that inference is grounded ultimately in my own subjective experience, right? That's the that's the thing I'm linking from. I'm saying, well, I'm conscious, I'm sentient. Now here's the inference from that. So even that line of thinking still uses my subjective positioning as a starting point. But you can also bypass all that crap and just look into the eyes of a cow or a puppy, or, as you said, and, yeah. and your brain is emotionally and intuitively making that same connection. And they, they're not distinct things, right? They, they are because of each other and they are ultimately the same phenomenon, I think. We're just experiencing different ways, you know. Um, so I, I do think there is a, a sort of a resolution and an integration of, you know, the objective and the subjective and how we see both of them ultimately are aspects of the same shared reality. You are abs absolutely right about how we sort of, you know, constantly interchange between the subjective and the objective. We may not necessarily frame it in those ways, but I think that is exactly the process by which we try and make sense of the world. Um, one of the ways in which I have been trying to grapple with to what extent, you know, the subjective objective realities uh, shape have shaped my politics is in the context of this rapidly changing political landscape in India, where you know, India's secularism is being disintegrated and um, and, uh, and 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 killed between before our very eyes, and and you know being replaced by this very authoritarian right wing model. And it is really interesting for those of us who grew up in the nineteen eighties and 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 seventies and eighties and nineties. Um, we grew up. I would like to think of it as we grew, we, we we were raised in secularism. We were we were raised and birthed in the in the world of secularism, and it was really. I mean, there was no question of, you know, we, we, we festivals were celebrated together, and 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 all religions were celebrated, and certainly, um, I cannot ever, I I cannot honestly recall a single anti-Pakistan comment rant, not even in passing. I can't recall it. I cannot recall it. There, there wasn't one. We, we weren't raised in that sort of model of social thinking or political thinking whatsoever. I must admit, we weren't necessarily as anti-casteist as I would have liked us to be looking back, right? I think we grew up in very privileged schools and privileged schools are populated by, um, by very privileged caste people who are not necessarily going to question their privilege. Um, but we we didn't grow up with that sort of um, anti-caste as much as, you know, a secular bringing but but I'm trying to think whether what sort of objective or subjective reality shaped our secularism that was taken for granted we we took that for granted we never questioned it we well, we were certainly taught that in schools we was you know India's constitution talks and proclaims secularism as one of the country's guiding principles um so we were taught that in a very objective ways but we also um subjectively would have lived that uh in having holidays for all festivals in, I think capitalism aided that as well as, uh, you know, in, in, in trying to sell all festivals equally. Yeah. So, Every, everybody's, um, everybody's rupees, you know, combined. Everybody's so. rupees are equally <laughs> valuable. That's right. Yeah. But I think, I think it was not until I got into animal studies that, um, and that was a very, very subjective entry in. That was not an objective entry and I did not think oh this would be a great career decision let me let me you know take a quick turn into animal studies that was you didn't not have a spreadsheet case. with pros and cons and... no no this was a fully emotional subjective 
decision. Some pe people actually told me this is a career career destroying decision. This is going to be a career unmaking decision. Um, and 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 this was ten years ago uh, when animal studies was relatively nascent. Certainly in my very mainstream university structure, there was you know no one doing animal studies, and it might or might not have been true that this could have could not have been an a career destroying decision. Uh, but there was no way because I was so emotionally immersed in what I saw. And when I, when I, you know, again, it was, it was a, a PETA video that sort of, yeah, I mean, I know PETA's politics are very problematic, but it was anti-fur or anti-leather videos that I saw. And I couldn't believe, and I said, not in my name. No one asked if this was okay. No one asked me if this was okay as a consumer. No one asked me, I, this is not, you know, not in my name. This could not go on in my name. And I made that decision to get into animal studies. But when I look into an animal's eyes, I look into my chicken's eyes, for example, I have, we have rescued chickens in our in our home, and I look into their eyes, and as I said, it's impossible. When you no longer see a difference between a chicken and myself, I genuinely cannot see a difference. No meaningful, significant difference. They have feathers, I have hands, but there is no meaningful, significant difference that I can see between a chicken and myself. Then any remaining vestiges of any difference that I might perceive between myself and a human being completely falls away. Yeah, yeah, thank you. This is not grounded in objectivity though. This is grounded completely in a subjective reality. But you know, there is no way that I cannot stick by it because it is so, the feeling is so visceral. The feeling is so animalistic and I trust my body feeling. Yeah, my yeah. body's feelings is not um, not a not a um, conclusion of rationalism. It is purely gut and feeling, right? Yeah. And that's what I choose to trust much more than I, I choose to trust my mind, yeah. which can tell me all sorts of stories. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Thank you. And and I'd I'd still argue that it's I think it's strongly correlated with and and flows from an objective reality. But I agree, you know, but but ultimately it's it's really the main thing that's driving who you are and what you value and. Uh, and how and how you think yeah yeah that's powerful thank yeah you. now yeah. what and and we've already started talking about what matters and who matters of course but you talked about the ideas of secularism and and religion particularly in Indian society as well um and the the way you were brought up you know secularism was just assumed and as most of my audience will probably know you know secularism isn't a stance against religion it's a it's a stance of governance and government that says well government should be neutral about religion and people of all faiths and none should be treated well and with respect and and supported um so it's so secularism isn't a commitment to not being religious it's a commitment to being egalitarian and fair regardless of religious faith at all but um i'm assuming your family were a uh, uh, a Hindu family, and that was the context you grew up in. So again, that's a great example, right? It's a Hindu family that deeply invested in secularism. Um, and that idea of religion is another fascinating one in this sort of what's real question, because that's one of the biggest questions when you're thinking about what's real is, you know, is there a God, is there a heaven and a hell, you know, that type of stuff. If if you're comfortable... Yes, of course. I'm interested in your personal journey on that front as well. I mean, you, are you Hindu now? Do you hold those beliefs have things shifted yep. at all for you on that front or? Yeah, that's a, that's a, I, lo I love that question. Um, 
Well, you know, when I first came to Australia, um, lots of people asked me, are you a practicing Hindu? And I had no idea what that meant, because there is a distinction here between a Christian and a practicing Christian. Yeah. Right. So, yeah. you know, a practicing yeah. Christian is differentiate from a from a, from a from other Christians. And I thought, are you a practicing Hindu? I'd never heard of this concept of a practicing Hindu before. And it felt to me like, oh, what does it I mean? What does I mean? what's the next question? Am I a practicing woman or am I a practicing Indian? Like, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. what yeah. does it mean to be a practicing woman? What do I need to do? That's a scary question. To, to, to sort of <laughs> Where's the list of rituals? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because for me, the idea of a practicing Hindu was, was, uh, was, a, was a frightening one because I thought it's actually making an identity normative. This is how you make an identity normative, right? Because... The Hinduism that I sort of grew up with makes no such demands. I mean, you, 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 whether I go to a temple, whether I chant and pray, or I mean, I haven't, I don't do anything at all that could be remotely distinguished as a practicing Hindu. In, in recent years, when I've gone to priests, when I've gone to temples, it's mostly to fight with priests about cow protection and the differences between, you know, our views and how cows are objectified in Hinduism. So, but, um, so, so I guess, you know, we grew up with a very um, egalitarian view of what it means even to be just a Hindu, leave alone what it means to be, you know, what, 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 what it means to be members of other religions. We had a very flexible, very egalitarian view personally growing up about what it means to be a Hindu. There was no expectations. There was no normative requirement about what it means to be a Hindu. And as I understand it, that's one area where Hinduism is very different from the Abrahamic religions, right? It's much less sort of centralized or dogmatized or strict. It's not like well, there's one God and here's the implication and here's the list of rules. It's, it is much sort of has been a much richer sort of broader, pluralistic, maybe more messy sort of worldview than some some of the other um yeah, yeah. Not if you ask the Hindu right at the moment, they will tell well, you. Well, that's the difference. Yeah. <laughs> so political Hinduism obviously is very different from the more theological, philosophical um, genre of of Hinduism. Um, but Hinduism, in its various sorts of genres, does have a very long history of of reflecting on the um, difference between illusion and reality. Right, Maya, which is illusion. What is illusion? What is reality? Hinduism has a very long history of trying to figure out what is Hindu, what is, you know, how do we sort of discern reality from the Maya or from the illusion that basically constantly confronts us. And um and 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 so so we, we have this sort of intellectual tradition of and how do you kind of practice that? How do you translate that into practice? And I think it is easy to sort of against, you know, where this is something which most um, religions would be vulnerable to is to sort of when you can't stay with this question of what is what is real and what is um, Maya or what is illusion. I think the the when that when that becomes too difficult to sit with, I think dogmatism becomes the answer, right? To to have very clear, very prescribed um, sorts of views on what it means. Um, Hinduism's flexibility and I don't know generosity, or it, sometimes it also seems like a trap <laughs> in letting us think about think about these things in 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 philosophical ways. It also you know allows us to sort of think about reality in action oriented ways. It allows us to think about living our own lives in you know we don't have to think about it in philosophical meditative ways. We can actually 
you know, th there's a karma yoga, karma yoga, which is talks about action oriented life, an act, a life of dharma, which is, you know, action, which is basically based on, on justice and, and just action. But again, these are very, you know, there's again, no prescription for how we sort of figure out what is just and what is ethical in, in these sorts of, and, you know, you know, in a whole range of varied situations. Hinduism will tell us that reality is what is unchanging. And then illusions are constant and there is, a, there is one transcendental unchanging reality. And in order to access that one transcendental unchanging reality, we have to sort of go deeper into, into all sorts of mind consciousness. And for which, again, practicing Hinduism, if you will, will offer lots of pathways. Fasting is one way that people fast as a way of trying to sort of sharpen the focus into, you know, non-sensory, non-physical modes, modes of relating to with the world and trying to go deeper into another, just another layer of subconsciousness. Uh, so, far, you know, so, so there are lots of avenues, meditation, fasting, et cetera, that, that people might deploy. But the one fundamental aspect of Hinduism, which I do like and which I do trust in, because ultimately I think religion is about faith. Right, it is about taking a, a leap of faith. Is that Hinduism does endorse that all living beings are divine. There's a sacrality, there's a divinity to all living beings, and there is there is there is no exemption. All human beings, we have a history of um, venerating plants. There's there's a history of tree worship in India, animal worship in India. Now this does become very difficult in the current political climate, which is actually mobilizing the sacrality of an animal to its ends, right? So it is a difficult line to thread, but also for what it actually means for a sentient being. It's one thing to worship a tree and it's one thing to worship a sentient cow. And it's one thing to worship a sentient human. Okay, now this is what actually concerns me, right? A few years ago, I was in Nepal, I was in Kathmandu. And one of the tourist attractions was a temple which had a young girl, where, where, the, where, the, where the goddess was a living goddess, a young girl. I think she was 10 years old or something. And we had gone there for an animal conference, actually, Animals for Asia, uh, Asia for Animals conference. And there were a lot of us that are, how is this even possible? We were so shocked and we were so confronted by the reality of a young girl being worshipped, who was probably, I think, six years old or eight years old, because... I'm not quite it's in India it would be considered to be child abuse to take a young child and put them you know because through many years until the girl reaches puberty she's going to be worshipped she's robbed of her childhood completely right um it also messes with their minds to be worshipped for so long and then to be rejected as a as a normal as a regular human being uh, they have no sense necessarily of who they are, but they have an objective and identity imposed on them. There's a particular, there's not just a politics of identity, which is, you know, the identity that I present to my identity that I present to the world. There's also a politics of identification, which means my identity is, is, is relies on the identity, the identity that I impose on you. That's the politics of identification. Right. So what the cow experiences is a politics of identification, because I have imposed a particular identity on the cow that directly relates to my own identity. When I worship a young girl, I've imposed a particular identity on a young, vulnerable girl that directly comes back to framing my own identity. 
right? And in my work, I argue that sacralization is a form of objectification as well. And any form of objectification is a form of violence, right? It's an imposition. It's, it's an a classification imposition. that devalues in a, in a sense. Yeah. Absolutely. Devalues in the name of potentially valuing. Yeah, as you do with that's the, the weird thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's that as you do with the cow, for example, as you do with that young girl who was being worshipped. Yeah. Right? Child worship is actually uh, would be treated, as I said, as, as an act of um, as, as a child rights violation. It still happens, I'm sure, in many parts of India, though we had been directly confronted with it in Nepal, another Hindu society, right? Uh, so that was, um, so, but, but uh, my, my point, and Indian feminists have been talking for a long time. Indian sociologists, sociological feminists have been talking for a long time about how one of the reasons for the, for the oppressed status of women in India directly relates to their elevated status as goddess, as a, as a mother, as a wife. Okay, at least the cow is not being treated as a wife, right? Or, um, but um, in the case of women, they, they have an exalted status as a mother, the exalted status as a wife actually pins them down, right? So Martha Nussbaum um, talks about objectification and she talks about, the se you know, the seven ways in which objectification is a form of violence fundamentally, except one, right? Except one, and this applies exclusively to human beings where there is informed consent where I provide informed consent to be objectified a certain way, then there is autonomy, you know, I'm, I'm more autonomous. I'm not fully objectified because I have provided informed consent. That's the only exception to objectification being violent. Otherwise, objectification is an act of violence. And sacralization is a form of objectification. Animals, other animals do not have the capacity to provide informed consent, right? So it, it becomes this act of violence as well. Yeah, that's that's really powerful. Thank you. And 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 I do want to come back to that because I think that's one of the central themes that will run through, you know, as you tell us the story of you, your book too. And the the question about religion and and how we choose what to believe and naturalism and so on. And and as you said, that leap of faith. You, you laid out some really good examples of there and why I think they're important. So some people will say, look, this idea of whether you're religious or not, or whether you have supernatural beliefs or whether you have faith, it doesn't really matter too much because it's just a personal thing that people have this view. Um, and, you know, why does it affect anything else, right? It's just, and 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 in a way, I'm absolutely fine with that. I'm a strong believer in freedom of belief and that secular idea that you can believe what you like as long as it doesn't become a justification for harming others. And, yeah. and the example with the young girl that you mentioned is, is a great example of, unfortunately, how that does work, because the reason those people are doing those things is because they hold beliefs in things that I think are completely unfounded in the evidence. They've taken a leap of faith, probably because of the way they were brought up, that leads them to genuinely believe certain things are true that I just don't think they are. And But because... Those people believe those things probably in a deeply faith-based dogmatic way. Yes. What they are doing in their terms is ethical and correct. Um, because That's they've right. sacralized the young girl and because she is the living instantiation of the God and they are doing the right thing. And and I guess the part of the reason I bang on about the evidence and reason and the naturalism is because if we have a shared commitment to evidence and reason, we can at least we could at least debate that and talk about, you know, what's the evidence behind that and is that a 
well-founded belief and we could try and find some way of engaging with reality with those people to talk about the experiences of this person and the harms being done but if their belief is fideistic and faith-based and dogmatic there's no real way to engage to engage with that in in a sense um so 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 would you describe yourself as a hindu today yes yeah and as part of that, do you ascribe to any beliefs that I might think of as supernatural? <laughs> or or is it a more sort of more sort of naturalized, pluralistic, sort of cultural version of Hinduism? Which I don't know. I don't know how to do, ask the question. But yeah. do, you, do you see what I'm getting no, that's at? A, that's that's great. I don't think I've ever been asked this. Do before. you believe the gods exist? Do you believe that yeah? I would absolutely um call myself a Hindu. I would also call myself a devout Hindu, but virtually everybody from the Hindu right would disagree <laughs> that I am a Hindu. Yeah. Um, Absolutely. I would yeah. not because, because I would be on such shaky grounds with questions like, is there a God? I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know. Um, Hinduism allows for a, a atheism, a, a agnosticism, yeah, rationalism. Yeah. And yeah, I, does, I yeah. don't know. I, I, and, I, and it was just really interesting. This trip, after after cl close to 20 years, I actually went to a temple as a devotee. I just had this urge and I went in pure faith and nothing else. But that happens has happened once in 20 years. It might be another 20 years before I visit a temple in the same spirit again. Um, do I believe in, you know, cosmological um, sentience of the stars and the sun? I don't. I don't know again, and and I and and I'd rather than saying yes or no. The simple answer is I don't know because these are all lie in the realm of unknowables for me. I don't know. Um, so it's what an does answer it more people should be brave enough to give. I think we're 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 sort of culturally tuned to say yes or no, but most often the best answer is I don't know. I I don't I don't know. There's no definitive way for for, for me to know. And here I, get, I think well, religion would say take a leap of faith and go one way or another. Um, and, and, and this is, this is again, where I think, you know, um, it's, but, 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 and, and here I take a leap of faith and say, I don't know. <laughs> I stick with that. That's right. But in terms of what distinguishes, um, if, 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 if another way of putting the question is what distinguishes me as a Hindu from, from anyone else, I wouldn't say that there is anything actually. I don't think there is fundamentally anything that distinguishes a Hindu um, from any other uh, any other human being, whether they're practicing a, a particular form of religion, thinking, thought, secularism, or not. Um, I just in 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 being a uh, in being a the only takeaway that I would take from Hinduism, and I don't think Hinduism is unique in any way, shape, or form from other religions or other forms of thinking in this respect, is the inherent divinity of all living beings. I'm willing to accept that. I fully accept that. I Sentient and non-sentient, which is, you know, plant life and trees are very, but they are alive. I, I don't know if they're sentient, but they are alive. And I'm happy and I'm, and I'm unhesitating, like, you know, um, microbial activity, I'm actually willing to accept the inher inherent um, sacrality of, of those beings as well, though they may not be sentient. Um, my only sort of caution would be to take this notion of sacrality into practice because it harms sentient beings when we start practicing our sacrality 
um, on them in a in an objectifying way. Yeah, brilliant. In in, in 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 the way that institutional religion demands that you build a temple to a cow, you build a temple to a living cow, you build a temple to a living child. That is where I have objections. Yeah, no, that's really good. And and you, of course, you answered. We've been talking about it already, but this sort of what matters question, but the who matters question, and you answered that there beautifully too. And I guess I'm a reasonably strict sentientist in that I tend to think that ultimately all value comes back to the experiences of sentient beings suffering, flourishing and so on. So so I draw a bit of a strong. So one, I'm quite open minded about where that boundary is. You know, we should be open minded about plant sentience and follow the science and, you know, oysters and bivalves and really simple animals. And so I'm, I'm quite open minded about that where that boundary is. And sentientism doesn't set a boundary. It just says take a naturalistic approach and use the science. Right. But I'm reasonably strict about sentience being the only thing that matters. Now, where that leads me is that I do care about all of the other non-sentient life and the environment we all share. And, you know, I have a rich environmental concern. But in a way, that's for me, it's more instrumental because I care about those things because of their impact. Exactly. The yes, yes. Whereas I'm, yours I'm goes yours goes more generously than that to, I think, to, to almost in, intrinsically seeing. It. So if we were completely confident that a plant wasn't sentient, couldn't suffer and didn't have its own experience, because it's living, you you would see an intrinsic value in in that living entity, even if there's no other sentient beings around it. You know, if we imagine a planet with just plant life and rocks and rivers, but there's no no sentient being will ever see it or experience it, you'd see some intrinsic value there. Whereas I I wouldn't want to destroy it anyway, right? Why why would we do that? Why, why vandalize <laughs> things? But I wouldn't see any intrinsic value in that planet if there was zero sentience. I, it feels like you go beyond that. I'm aligned with your thinking uh, in 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 to a to a significant extent because I would also see uh, I would also be instrumental in seeing the value of plant life as in in terms of their worth to other animals. As I said, when I started when we started living with chickens, um, I suddenly realized, oh my god, I shouldn't and I cannot clear my garden of weeds anymore, right? Because I see this plant as a weed for the chicken. That's really valuable food. There it is it's so political. You can't you can't just I can't just pluck out weeds as I would as I would previously. So they're not weeds. They don't and weeds is and weeds is a somewhat arbitrary social construct anyway. So we can just reclassify it. It is. It's it's <laughs> it's a racial construct in the plant world, really. Yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. It's a it's a it's a it's a blatantly racial and discriminatory construct in the plant world. Uh there's very it's a very deeply politically problematic term to call someone a weed because a weed means they're inherently disposable yeah right um invasive you, you species know, and... exactly like urban planners have caught have talked about the garden state where some are plants and flowers to be preserved and then the rest are weeds that you take out like city beautification has proceeded on the on the on the idea of the of the city as a garden state where you pull out the weeds you know where you pull out the poor people the poor people are disposable they can be thrown out um, you know, certain forms of non-human life are also disposable to the city, to the urban life, and they can be pulled out. So, so the idea of the weed is very political. Uh, but what I'm anyway, but going back to your original question about um seeing the inherent value of of plant life. So certainly yeah, I'm are very the, are the chickens harming those plants by eating them? I guess that's another way of asking the question. You know, is there <laughs> is that is that a mor- <laughs> the, is that a morally negative thing for the chickens to be doing? I, I, you know, because chickens and I share that quality of eating plants. Um, yeah. And and as as a, you know, 
the neurobiological system of plants is so different from a mammal or a bird or other forms of animal life. And therefore, I don't feel hesitation in allowing myself or the chickens to eat plants as they will. Um, but so, and that's so often part of the plant's life cycle in itself anyway. That's often how plants yeah, propagate yeah. themselves. But so I don't know if that's an excuse, but... <laughs> <laughs> yes, that is exactly true. They do have that. That is part of the system of propagation, and um, I share the instrumental view that as if it helps the chickens live flourishing lives, go for it. Um, but I would also see inherent value beyond that as well. If there was a, a planet full of trees and there was no other living being, that would be fine. That would be sufficient. I don't necessarily take the view that um, there has to be an instrumental or utilitarian value to non-sentient living life. I think it is important in some ways that we maintain that view because we need to sort of, I think, uh, disassociate, divest ourselves of trying to put value in, onto everything. We, we, if there is no value and we still see, if there is no usable value, if there is no instrumental or utilitarian value attached to a living being, I think it's actually more really critical to still see value in them inherently because there's a danger in instrumentalization, isn't there? It's because it's, it's quite often quite a naive, selfish instrumentalization. I think you could have a really generous instrumentalization that appreciates the rich interdependencies and things we don't understand and things we can't see, or you can have a really sort of selfish, narrow instrumentalization, which turns into a just you know destroy anything for marginal benefit to me. That's right, because I think what worries me about human beings is that we are so easily given to extraction and we are also able to collectivize extraction. We are able to institutionalize it. We are able to do it uh, very thoroughly, systematically um, and, uh, and, and, and very efficiently. We are very good at extractive, extracting. So I think to develop that quality of being able to see value without feeling any um, compulsion to extract is actually a good thing whether I'm extracting on behalf of myself or my chicken or another animal, to be able to appreciate without extraction is, I think, an important um, quality for human beings to cultivate, just given our tendency to extract so efficiently. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, one of, the, one of the other risks with a more expansive moral scope, if you like, um, than sentience is I think there are many people, and I'd include you in this, and I'd probably include me in it, that you know, are sort of open-minded about whether we should go further in a genuine way, right? So we, we we fully grant moral consideration to sentient beings. We appreciate the perspective of the other. We recognize their suffering, their flourishing, their want, their will to live as deeply important things. So that's for the sentient beings. But we're open-minded about you know go, going further than that. But there are there is a couple of dangers, I think. One is the sort of obvious Twitter troll example of someone saying, well, plants can suffer too, because I read an article in some magazine that said carrots scream. Um, so cutting a pig and cutting a carrot are morally equivalent. So I'm going to have another burger. Right. So so that's one stance, which is disingenuous and not well-founded. And they are ultimately don't care about either. That, but they're using that as a pretense, right? Because when you have a conversation about, oh, yeah, actually, the the idea of plant sentience and ethics is really interesting. And let's talk about the implications of that. And you do realize that gives you even more reasons to go vegan. You know, we know where that conversation is. So let's put those people to one side because they're trolling. <laughs> but there is, but there is, but there is, I think, another risk 
and this isn't as disingenuous, of, of a sort of ethical flattening. And you can find this, that this comes through quite a lot of uh, religious worldviews, um, but it can come through a sort of uh, a generous idea of spirituality, and it can even come through some forms of environmentalism, where you go to the sense of, someone will say to me, well, look, Jamie, you're too focused on sentient beings, actually rocks, rivers, trees, plants, the earth as an ecosystem matters, everything matters, and every entity within that matters, which feels very generous, but then there is a risk of some sort of flattening where you've you've lost the salience of sentience itself. So that people, they're not the Twitter trolls, right, talking about screaming carrots, but they sort of almost end up in a similar place where they say everything matters, it's all interconnected, the, there are these circles of life, um, humans shouldn't be arrogant to disconnect ourselves from nature, we should play our part in these circles of life and consumption of other living beings is regretful, but it's something we should all play our part. And we're at the apex of the food chain. And ultimately they come to the same place and say, give me another Big Mac and a, and a milkshake. So I should stop ranting, right? But how, how do we avoid that danger of a sort of ethical flattening that sounds nice, everything matters, but then the poor old sentient beings end up being you know, exploited and brutalized in that context? Exactly. No, that 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 worldview really worries me, and it is something which does come up in Hinduism. It comes up in 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 I think uh, many really all, all religions probably comes up in indigenous worldviews as well about the inherent sacrality of all cosmos, stones, rivers, mountains are all inherently sacred. In Indi in Hinduism, we have a we have strong traditions of mountain worship, river worship. Uh, worshipping lots of physical landscapes. Now, let me restrict myself to Hinduism here because that is just the context that I know really well. It is not just animals or it's not just sentient living beings who suffer when sacralized. Rivers, mountains, all suffer enormous ecological degradation when they are sacralized, when they are objectified in this way, right? Take the river Ganga, for example. One of the most polluted rivers, one of the most sacred rivers of India, the Yamuna River and the Ganga River are some of the most sacred rivers of India. And they are amongst the most polluted to the extent that many river um, experts think they're dead. These rivers are fundamentally dead. There is really no, uh, and, and there's millions and billions of dollars poured into revitalizing the disease of these rivers. While, now, while the, being worshipped. Yeah. While being worshipped. They, they, one of the major reasons for the river pollution, some of it is industrial but huge amounts of it is just purely religious. There's a huge amount of religious waste that is going into these rivers. These rivers have been brutalized as well. You know, mountains, mountain ecologies have suffered because of the huge amounts of traffic, um, pilgrim traffic, religious traffic around them. So they, they, it's, it's not to say that non-sentient natural landscapes do well or flourish. Um, you know, we have we have a huge tradition of sacred groves in India. We have no forest left. We have no forest left, right? Emma Tomalin, she's um, a, 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 an academic based in the UK. She's written this book called Biodivinity and Biodiversity, I think. And she basically raises the same question in the context of the environment. If Hinduism regards the environment in such high, with such high veneration, then why does India have some of the most degraded environments in the world, right? So this whole idea of um, the cosmos, the nature, the rivers, the stones, the oceans, all of them being sacred is also one that we should approach equally carefully. 
because it sounds the, the cow is a mother sounds nice so many most people are shocked to hear about the status of cows in india they actually think indian dairy farming is the exemplar i've had so many people say indian dairy farming is exemplar because the idea of cows as sacred or cow as mother sounds nice the sacrality of the of, of the interconnected nature also sounds nice but the reality always shows something different and let's come on to that so so the final question we like to ask is how how can we make a better future and that's another crazily big question but we sort of go well if we understand reality in a certain way and we care about a certain range of beings or entities and okay how do we how do we make things better for those entities right so we could go anywhere here in terms of utopian visions the challenges of interhuman relations the links between religion and politics and discrimination and casteism and so on but i guess the, the best place to start would be to pick up that story and and i think your diagnosis of the problem of you know the sacred and being worshipped is is absolutely fascinating and i haven't thought about taking it even beyond uh sentient beings too because a naive reading of it is like wouldn't it be nice to be worshipped right wouldn't it be nice to be thought of as sacred it's like you, people thinking you're the most important thing in the world wouldn't that be a wonderful thing but as you've made crystal clear in almost every instance actually what's happening is your perspective is not being taken into account. This is not an empathic or a sympathic or a compassionate stance. You, your, your perspective is not really involved here. You're being taken and objectified and then often controlled and sometimes even destroyed as you're being worshipped. It's a relationship of domination and control. So in my book, I talk about the framing of the, the framing of the cow as mother is one of domination and control. You control and dominate the cow when you call her a mother. So can you summarize the book in five minutes for us? <laughs> sorry, sorry. But but it's it's such a brilliant example because I think you can you can frame it by saying, look, you know, people who don't know much about India will probably think, well, the Hindu religion sees cows as sacred. And then you will tell them about the scale and the intensity of the Indian beef, dairy, and leather industries. And someone will go, how can that be? And I, and I guess that's, you know, your answer to this is centered around the idea of what sacredness means and what its implications are. But yeah, how would you sort of lay out that story for us? Well, my curiosity that led to this book initially started in 2014 when the Hindu right came to power for the first time in, in independent India and they, they assumed power at the center. And at the same time uh, in 2014, and, and they started to mobilize cow protection as one of their major electoral agendas. The cow is our mother, as in the mother of Hindus, and those who butcher the cow, Muslims, are committing a crime basically against Hindus as well, right? And they do not belong to the Hindu state, because if you belong to the Hindu state, you must revere the cow as your mother. And for people outside of India, they may, they may assume that these messages were background, subliminal, implied, hinted at, but were they were, are they actually that explicit? It was actually that explicit. In 2014, it became literally that explicit because um, butchers who are frequently um, Muslims are of so-called lower castes, right? Scheduled castes, scheduled tribes. They were the former, in, in quotes, untouchables of Indian society, the Dalits. Um, they were frequently at the, the, the they're frequently the butchers. Right, and it's 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 same in India as in any other society. The poorest, the most marginalized, the most vulnerable are the ones that take on butchering jobs because who else wants them? 
right? So it was the same in India. It, you know, the, the political economy of bovine production in India, which is basically dairy production in India, the slaughter end of dairy production in India is populated by Muslims and Dalits, right? So they were, you know, they were, and they always have been some of the main butchers of cows as well as other animals. And um, so when the Hindu right came into power, there was suddenly a resurgence of lynching, killing, raping, beating of the of members of these communities who were accused of killing the cow and implicitly killing, trying to kill Mother India because the cow is a standing for the mother nation itself, right? So basically I started to probe, um, my curiosity was about, you know, what happens I just wanted to understand the realities of, of the cows themselves and basically what happens in India. What So basically that led me to the dairy industry because India does not have a beef industry. And while we, so the, this, this puzzle about how does India become the largest beef producer in the world, a country where some about 20, 25 states have a, have a ban on cow slaughter. Yeah, we don't have a national ban on cow slaughter. We do not have a national ban on cow slaughter. Nepal has a national, is the only country that has a national ban on cow slaughter, right? India actually doesn't because India is a secular republic. So technically speaking, we cannot have a national ban on cow slaughter, but every state is allowed to enact its own sort of bans and many, many states have, most of the states have. So it doesn't actually add up that a, car, that a country that actually has such a such significant bans on cow slaughter or such, where it is so heavily regulated becomes the world's leading producer of beef. And I wanted to understand this uh, puzzle, right? And one way of explaining it is that Indian the Indian beef sector is largely composed of water buffaloes, which is true to a significant extent, yeah. but that is not the complete story. That is not the complete story. Basically what happens in and India- water buffaloes aren't thought of as cows in- that context and my understanding is there are different breeds of cows and some of them don't qualify either is that exactly exactly so so uh, it's only the native indian cows that really are considered to be sacred cows now this again is not something that the constitution says the constitution does recommend that you know there should be a ban on cow slaughter but it but it can't enforce it it doesn't state that it should be it recommends that this is this would be an ideal um, but it makes no differentiation about the breeds of cows that must be saved. This is something that on the ground, when you translate a national ban on cow slaughter or a ban on cow slaughter per se, in a country that's also producing dairy, that's also breeding cows for dairy, you've got to be able to interpret this law in some way which is feasible, which basically means that you have to make some cows not sacred. These are the foreign breeds. These are what they call the American breeds, the Holsteins, the Jerseys, um, as well as the crossbreeds that are crossbred with the native Indian breeds. These are all you know, considered to be not sacred. So a lot of Gaushalas, which are cow shelters, will only accept native Indian cows, for example, into their cow shelters. And everyone else, what happens to everyone else? This is the real story, right? So in every other country, that produces dairy, including the leading dairy producers, whether it's Australia, whether it's the United States, or whether it's the European Union, it's very clear that dairy cows eventually end up in the slaughterhouse. In India, somehow this is disrupted. In India, somehow cows are bred for dairy. They go through the cycle of dairy production. You have your infertile cows, you have your diseased cows, you have your male, male uh, bulls, uh, you have male calves, 
you have a you have significant members, in other words, of the bovine family who are not lactating, who are not producing milk, same as what happens in every other country. Somehow in India, though, the story goes that these animals are not slaughtered. What happens then? Supposedly, gaushalas, which are cow shelters, receive them. We all know that no animal sanctuary, no animal shelter, however well-intentioned, however well-resourced, is completely incapable of fully absorbing the dairy industry. We all know that. So what happens in India is that the dairy production continuum, which in every other country is, they go through the cycle of dairy production, and then the, production, the, the continuum ends up in the slaughterhouse. In India, what happens is that cow slaughter simply goes underground. So we actually have the largest industrialized scale of, when I say industrialized, I just mean the scale of it. We have the largest scale of cow slaughter anywhere in the world. It's completely underground. There is no other way for India to sustain itself as a dairy producing country. So the, so the way that you resolve this tension between the sacredness of the cow and the existence of the industry is by hiding the slaughter and also at the same time condemning and attacking the people who are involved in the slaughter and declaring them as beyond the pale. Exactly, because there's two things that is going on here. On the one hand, cows and cow milk is central to the Hindu identity. Consumption of cow milk is central to the Hindu identity. Uh, milk, butter, and ghee are all considered to be very sacred in ritual Hinduism, right? So they are considered to be very sacred in ritual Hinduism. Um, because Hindu they've come from the sacred mother. They come from the sacred mother. They're used in sweets. They are very, very strongly linked to the Hindu identity. And the mother sustains us. Exactly. Yeah. So on the one hand, you need dairy to sort of fully compose the Hindu identity. But you, you have to distance yourself from the slaughter. That goes underground. Now, the slaughter is, is, is the political economy of slaughter in India is such that they are uh, done by Muslims. They are done by so-called low-caste Hindus. Okay? So it is very easy in the construction of the Hindu state while using the cow. You, you get to use the cow and vulnerable labor associated with the cow to construct the Hindu state two times. One is in the dairy industry. And the second time is you can yet to use it again. Um, you get to use the cow again at the time of slaughter by saying, by condemning her slaughter while celebrating her milk, while the two are in intertwined. Yeah. And it's another example of so many where different forms of oppression mutually reinforce each other and overlap and... Yeah, yeah. So you have a you have a case of genuinely clashing or conflicting vulnerabilities because on the one hand, the cow in India is as vulnerable to the extractions of dairying as anywhere else in the world. In fact, even more so because you will not find cows eating plastic and uh, toxic waste the way they do in India. You know, the cows are abandoned, they're street, you know, uh, the ones that are roaming around on the streets are abandoned cows. 60, 60 kilos, 70 kilos, 80 kilos of plastic in their abdomen. And we don't even, we can't even begin to fathom what it means for a cow to consume plastic because they have four chambers in their stomachs. The agony that they go through, uh, because the plastic doesn't go through the four chambers. You know, it, it results in innumerable blockages. I have seen cows in these prolonged processes of dying. It is very difficult to euthanize a cow in India. 
euthanasia per se is uh, is rarely done in india but it becomes highly political to euthanize a cow in india so they just die abject prolonged deaths so a cow remains vulnerable not just to dairying but to the unique conditions of dairying in india particularly where they are underfed they are over extracted they are subjected to you know oxytocin injections for greater milk extraction they are eating garbage they are eating toxic garbage uh so they are they are uh, vulnerable to the, all of these conditions and at the same time there's a clashing vulnerability because the butchers who slaughter the cows are also vulnerable to the extractions this time of the hindu state i and i find it fascinating we talked about this briefly before as well because this is a particular context in um uh, given where india is today politically with hindu nationalism and the and the themes we've talked about here but it also seems to echo some of the links between nationalist modes of thinking and the way we think about non-human animals and animal agriculture in other parts of the world as well so you know a classic example is uh, certainly feels like it's coming through in the us and in the uk is an association between particularly the far-right nationalists who make it really explicit and the role of animal agriculture and there the rationale is is a bit different because they don't worship ours or any other animals but they and and i think it whereas the um i'm gonna radically oversimplify here but in in a in a hindu context it's more about an expansive as you said you know we're all part of an interconnected whole and we can we can worship and we worship the cow as our mother and then we will exploit and um extract and and harm through that worship whereas in the western mode it's a little bit more again an echo of a sort of uh, Christian or Abrahamic view, which is more deliberately anthropocentric. So it's much more, we have dominion and the earth is here for us. And ultimately humans are the point of the universe. And we're going to be very proud of putting that into practice. And then that links to themes of, um, you know, one of the driving forces of colonialism was the need for more land for animal agriculture. There are some quite odd patterns of behavior where some on the far right have come to see their tolerance for lactose as a marker of their racial supremacy and will you know chug quarts of milk as a sign of pride that you know they as Aryans have evolved sufficiently to be able to so there's some all sorts of and then there's the classic might makes right and um you know will to power and a, a comfort oppressing others and my freedom is so important that it even allows me to harm others you know that classic extreme far right mindset but but there is also that link to as you talked about before, where I think maybe there's more direct parallel, where that very socially conservative mindset thinks about women in it, a way that echoes what you talked about before, where there is this sense of, you know, women are worshipped and they're special, but you have to fit in your traditional role as a wife and a mother, and this is what you do. And again, it feels similar. You sort of put on a pedestal, oh, isn't that nice? But actually you're being controlled and exploited and restricted and and often oppressed. So there's, I'm going on too long, but it's, it's really interesting that from very different cultural backdrops, you can still see some sort of similar echoes feeding through. Oh, very similar. So in the use of cows, I um, Hinduism is as anthropocentric as um, in the Abrahamic religions because sacralization is anthropocentrism. Yeah, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Right? It is absolutely yeah. an anthrop anthropocentric way of relating to uh, another animal. Um, it is a 
if you think about who is sacralized, it is actually always the most vulnerable subjects. It is animals, it is women, it is children, it is nature, where we yeah. can have dominion and control over nature, right? So because anthropocentrism stratifies along human and non-human lines as well. It is not just related to human oppression of non-humans. It also relates to human oppression of other vulnerable humans and nature itself. So anthropocentrism is about an ideal, idealized human, whether it is the white male, whether it is the Brahmin male, whether it is the Brahmin female for that matter, right? It is an idealized, privileged, racialized, casteized human that gets to sort of be the exemplar human and all the other subcategories of humans, which is which might be women, which might be children, which might be um, people of other religions, castes, etc., but also includes the non-human world. So anthropocentrism manifesting as worship, manifesting as sacralization is very much an act of domination and control, which I think is equally shared by Hinduism as with the Abrahamic religions. In, in It's an extractive model. Sacralization is an extractive model. Yeah, thank you. And I think I'd sum that up by saying if someone offers you the choice of being considered sacred and worshipped or just being an object of compassion where others care about you because of your exactly. own perspective, pick option B, pick option, definitely pick option B. Yeah. Now, in this Final question, we're talking about how to make a better future. So you've, you've laid out a, a, a sort of fascinating diagnosis of a, of a situation. I'm going to ask you, is there a way forward here? Because in the sort of classic, you know, in the US, in the UK and Europe, when we're thinking about the problem of that sentient animal agriculture, um, more and more people are seeing it as an issue. We see the ethical issues. We see the environmental issues. Some degree, we see human health issues. But the story is somewhat simple, right? So this, the story here is the animal agriculture industries are very powerful, but actually they're quite small. There's a percentage of the people involved in those industries is quite small. So if we can reduce demand by ultimately everyone going vegan, and if we can help those industries transition uh, to plant agriculture or environmental rebuilding or some other you know, less harmful way of life, uh, then that will be the answer and we'll end up in a, you know, we'll have transitioned our uh, industries to plant-based systems. We'll have new technical fixes with plant-based meats and cultivated meats as well for the people who, you know, uh, laggards and won't come across to just eat vegetables. Um, and then that's the answer, right? That's how we'll work. Where it'll be a just transition. We'll transition those industries, demand down, some new technical fixes, switch across and we're done. Yeah. India, as you've already made clear, has a very different context, partly because the proportion of people involved in animal agriculture is much, much larger as a percentage of the population. And it's, it has a very different character in that sense. But the cultural context you've talked about is also radically different, too. So sort of simplistic notions of how we might like to run a just transition in the US just, just don't apply I don't think, but so how do you think about the possibility for positive change? And if you, if if we did imagine a utopian vision where um, there was an end to the exploitation, harming, and killing of non-human animals, what yes, what could that path possibly look like in the Indian context? So this is um, so this is in order. In, I've been thinking about this question a lot through the writing of my book, right? Like so, so what happens next? 
we all know that, you know, I've just shown you how terribly cows are abused in India. What's next? And my inspiration for what's next and what's next is actually India's dairy industry. Right. So in the 1950s, when India had just gained independence and India was still impoverished and India was still food insecure and we were still importing food as well as milk from the West. One of the ways in which food security was, you know, food security was India's biggest priority post-independence. And one of the ways to achieve this was to um, strengthen not just plant-based farming, but, you know, one of the innovations, this was considered to be literally an innovation, was to revitalize dairy farming in some way, right? So dairy farming in India was instituted as a poverty alleviation program. It had nothing to do with nutrition. It had nothing to do with um, with cultural imperatives because India is not actually traditionally a dairy consuming country. We are the largest dairy consumer and producer now, uh, but dairy farming in India was instituted in the 1970s as a poverty alleviation program. And it was all centered around the emancipation of farmers. And to that extent that it did that, it's 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 actually the, in, the world's largest poverty alleviation program. It is the most successful in scale. It's the largest poverty alleviation program in the world. And this has happened in a, in, a, in a very quick and rapid period of about 50, 60 years. It's happened really quickly, right? So this is what gives me hope, is prioritizing the farmer, the farmer's needs. The farmers weren't naturally wanting to produce dairy. They weren't, you know, farmers were, you know, the, the industry was heavily subsidized, so heavily subsidized that, you know, the, the, and, the and the state was sort of, you know, um, undertook an obligation to buy every last drop of milk that the farmers produced. So the farmer's income was assured. Right. We have a glut of milk in the country now, which is now dehydrated in as, as milk powder. But India has an excess, hugely excess amount of milk. I think virtually all dairy producing countries have an excess amount of milk, which is dehydrated as powder to be used uh, to be you know mixed with water again when needed, etc. Um, so this makes me, you know, so so I've been thinking about this and I just think the, the, the pathway forward is to put the farmer first. And subsidize the farmer and support and produce and support the farmers. But but these these can be done really thoughtfully. Like for example, cashew farmers in India. Cashew farming is one of the most is is, is an industry rife with human rights abuses and child rights abuses. There's a lot of child labor that is used in cashew farming in India, right? How about heavily subsidizing the cashew industry and really cleaning up the cashew industry, making cashew farming to be so attractive and sustainable, for example, that farmers are encouraged? Because that's how dairy farming took off. Jackfruit farming, for example, gluts and gluts of jackfruit used to go to waste annually in India until veganism took off in the West and jackfruit farmers could suddenly export all this sort of wasted jackfruit, um, you know, that was going to waste in India, they could export it to the West now. They had a sudden resurgence of income, right? So it is actually possible to do this exactly the way dairy farming did it, which is to place the farmer first. To place the farmer at the center of everything would actually make the biggest difference. So it is actually about subsidizing all of these plant-based imperatives um, instead, what is happening is that all the animal industries are being being subsidized to the extent that animal-based products are actually much cheaper. It's a source of enormous shame in India that uh, uh, chicken is cheaper than lentils in India now. It's because of the way that chicken, the chicken, the poultry industry, the chicken industry is so heavily subsidized, so heavily subsidized as compared to the legumes and beans and and uh, uh, that that India is actually known for. 
right? So, to, so, but this is not natural. This is not a natural outcome. This is a political outcome. This is this is an outcome of a carefully designed political economy that can be changed. That can be changed only by putting the farmer first and providing subsidies very carefully to particular industries. That will allow this. Yeah, yeah, thank you. So put the farmer first. And India's already shown it can do this sort of transition, but now it just needs to transition to a plant-based economy instead. And you have confidence that it could be done. And I guess the challenge then becomes one of you know, points of view and worldviews and political will. What do you think are the most effective messages there? And how hopeful are you that they might play through? So the, the sorts of examples, of course, include, you know, the conversations around human health, which we need to be evidence-based, we shouldn't overclaim, but, you know, there's some stories there. Um, there's clearly the environmental imperative, you know, whether it's emissions and land use and pollution and, uh, you know, zoonosis and the other uh, stories uh, in that context too, which obviously have a bearing on India um, and Indian politicians. Um, do you think there is also a path around the non-human animal ethics as well? Is Is there a way to engage with people about what the implications of sacredness should mean can can you have a conversation that says you know if you worship the cow if you see the cow as your mother look at the harms these industries are doing can we convert the worship into compassion somehow i don't how do you think about yeah. those messages yeah this actually takes me back to what you said i think early in the conversation about would would you prefer to be objective sacralized or would you prefer to be the uh, you know the subject of compassion and um in india's constitution i think it's one of the first in the world again to basically state that every indian citizen has a fundamental duty to be compassionate to um other animals we actually have that in, it's in the constitution. pretty progressive on the fundamental front, yeah we have a fundamental duty. Every Indian citizen has a fundamental duty to be compassionate, to show compassion. I mean, to you know, all living creatures and you know, especially other animals. Um, and when I was looking at the etymology of compassion, it actually means co-suffering, right? It's actually co-suffering. So it, the Indian Constitution is actually asking us to co-suffer with other animals, which is very different from sacralization, which is an act of domination which is an act of control. So when we were ta talking earlier about what is the difference between ob observation and witnessing, and you know, when I said it's about allowing oneself to be vulnerable, compassion requires that, compassion uh, Compassion demands that. Com if I'm compassionate to another living being, it also demands in turn that I am vulnerable to what, in, to what being compassionate means. There's a certain vulnerability to being compassionate, right? So, whether these modes of thinking can find their way into the, you know, in, into ways that translate into the political economy, I would very much like to think that yes, it would. And again, I want to sort of fall back on what has worked in India, in the context of India previously. What has worked in the context of India previously? With the, um, in the, with the independence movement, in the Indian independence movement, for example, what worked then? You know, there was again a mobilization, a mass mobilization. What were the elements of that mass mobilization? And can we translate that into remobilizing again for the cause of non-human animals? And, um, you know, Mahatma Gandhi in his sort of, you know, talks about ahimsa, non-violence, commitment to truth. Can we find 
ways of embodying all of that again or does it require a charismatic leader and i think it is actually not that absurd to think that it that there is actually a need for a charismatic charismatic leader we haven't got that yet for non-human animals in quite the same powerful way we don't have a nelson mandela we don't have a mahatma gandhi we don't have a martin luther king for animals and i think that is actually a really significant gap it's a massively significant gap we don't have someone who will sacrifice and show and embody in a really in 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 a in a in such a powerfully visceral way we don't have that and i think the impact of an of a of a charismatic but not just charismatic someone who has actually gone beyond most of humanity to live these ideals to sacrifice for these ideals to suffer for these ideals um there that the value is not to be understated i think there's immense value in that there's importance in that we haven't got that and i think we need a leader we need lots of leaders to emerge in the way that mahatma gandhi did in the way that nelson mandela did martin luther king did we we need these ideals to sort of these these sorts of personalities to reemerge because i think humans i think most movements have sort of in some ways gathered around these sorts of figureheads historically I don't think that's different today either. Yeah, and it feels like the the raw materials are there, the potential is there, right? It's already in the constitution, it's already in the ideas of ahimsa, it's it's already you know the the backdrop and the capability is there, but you feel like you need some charismatic leadership to really crystallize it and pull it together and we need some sort of charismatic leadership and and, and it's very you know, I mean the world has changed we are suspicious of charismatic leaders now we are suspicious and we are right we are right to be suspicious of charismatic leaders we know that charismatic leaders can do a lot of harm we have living examples of that all over the planet today oh, yeah. right so we know the great potential of of harm and and we we um we, we are right to be suspicious of them but i think we also intuitively will recognize a great leader when one comes along yeah are are you available by the way <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> well I, that that was brilliant thank you and and a, a hopeful answer as well i know things feel tough at the moment um but there's there's so much positive potential there um so there's yes. some hope as well yeah thank you oh we need to think that we need to believe that too yes yeah we do um so i will let you go and relax into your evening thank you so much for spending so much time with me and oh, yeah i mean i just you. i just share that hope that you know the the ideas of ahimsa the ideas of compassion and co-suffering and and also in the political realm the importance of democracy and secularism that india is rightly so proud of continue to shape the nation going forward um yeah so let's let's hope Oh that would be the most hopeful sort of vision I have for the future. Thank you for that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's such a wonderful country. Yeah. But yeah, thank you that was such a such a pleasure to talk to you. What's the best way of people following you, reading your book of course, learning more about your work, you know, plugging t- plugging into your new Twitter account now you've been allowed back on? Yeah, I have a new Twitter account because I deactivated my other Twitter account for so long I lost my Twitter account. So I've got a new baby Twitter account uh at yamini narayanan you might be able to follow me there if you wish and uh, my university website is probably the best way of finding my updated work because that's very regularly updates my my publications 
So, which would be my profile page on the Deakin University website. Yeah, cool. I'll include the links in the show notes so people can click through. Well, thank you again. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. And please do stay in touch. It's been great to have you as a guest on Sentientist Conversations. Thank you so much, Jamie. I really enjoyed our conversation as well. Take care. Thanks for listening. You're helping to normalize rational, compassionate thinking. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us some stars or a review. You can visit sentientism.info to find out more and you'd be very welcome in any of our online community groups. The biggest is on Facebook. If you like what we're doing, why not tell your friends about us?